The Toby Gribbon Show. Highlights. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Gary K. Wolf is an American author who's with us here just now. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I want to I want to give a big shout out to all my friends out there in the United Kingdom. Uh, my my second favorite country after this one. <laughs> yeah. Now you are probably best known for being the creator of a very well known character. But who is that character? Enlighten us. <laughs> oh, you mean this guy back here? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how it all started, mm. because uh, you have to know a little bit about how it started to know how he came to be. Mm. Uh, and it started back when I was in the second grade. Yeah. I went to a uh, I went to a, a school in a, a little farm town in uh, in Illinois, in the United States. Mm. And uh, there were fourteen hundred people total in town. My my dad wasn't a farmer. He ran the pool hall in that town. And my mother uh, worked in the school cafeteria. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I went to school there, public school. Um, in the second grade, the teacher gave us a picture to color. And the whole object of the exercise was to stay inside the lines. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that was all. Just stay inside the lines. And there was nobody better at staying inside the lines than I was. So um, I took that picture home that night and I looked at the picture and and it was a typical farm scene. There was a farmhouse, there was a barn, there there was a a grassy meadow, there was a fence, and there was one cow standing all alone out in the middle of the meadow. Hmm. So I looked at the picture and I, I colored the farmhouse yellow because that's the color farmhouses were around my house. Uh, I colored the barn red because that's what color barns are. Yeah. Uh, you know, grass green, fence brown. And I looked at that cow and all alone out there in the middle of the field. And my mother had always told me, she says, you know, when people are all alone, they get sad. They get lonely and they get blue. Mm. And I said, hey, you know, uh, works for works for people, must work for cows. So I colored that cow blue <laughs> and I turned the paper in the next day. So the day after that, the teacher passed them all back. Everybody got their paper back except me. Mm. And she said, Gary, she says, you, you come up here to the 
come up here to the front of the class. And I'm thinking, I stayed inside the lines better than anybody, right? Yeah. So I went up to the front of the class. She said, now turn around and face the class. So I turned around, I faced the class. She put that picture up over my head. And she said, children, look at this stupid, stupid picture. She said, everybody knows cows are brown, cows are white, cows are black. Sometimes cows are brown, black, and white, all three. Yeah. Never, never, never are cows blue. Blue cows do not exist. Just, Gary, don't you ever do anything like that again. She called my mother. I mean, my mother had to go to school, right? Yeah. And they have a conference with the teacher. And the teacher said, she says, you know, she said, I think there's something wrong with Gary. I think we might have to get him some psychological help. Yeah. So that night, my mother and my father called me into the living room. And uh, they, 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 they set me down. And my mother asked me, she said, Gary, why did you color that cow blue? And I said, Ma, you know, I, it, it wasn't me. It was really, it was you. <laughs> you told me, you know, people sad and lonely. They get blue cows, sad and lonely. Cow must be blue. So I colored a cow blue. So my mother said, okay, your, your dad and I have to talk about this. You go outside and play for a while and we'll call you when we're done. So I went outside and uh, I did not think this was going to have a good ending because you, you, you got to understand my mother and my father, right? My, my dad had to quit school in the third grade to go to work. This was during the depression. Yeah. So third grade, my mom had to drop out of school in the eighth grade to go to work during the depression. So these, these were not what you would call upscale urban liberals. All right. I mean, these were, these were hard travel working people, but luckily they had a lot of common sense because they called me back in and, my mom said, okay, she says, your dad and I talked about this and we thought about what you said and we decided the next time you want to color a cow blue, you go ahead and color a cow blue. So, I mean, I've colored a whole lot of cows blue since then, but that was the first time that anybody kind of validated my creativity, kind of gave me permission to take the road less traveled. Uh, so my mom, my mom called the, the teacher and said to the teacher, you know, his dad and I discussed it. The next time he wants to do something a little out of the ordinary, you go ahead and let him. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe three, four weeks later, that teacher asked the class to write one page on what, what we did during our summer vacation. Right. Mm. And you know, people are writing, oh, I went swimming or I, you know, I went to the state fair, I went here, I went there. So I wrote that I went out into my backyard and I used tin foil and aluminum cans and string and a rubber band and a propeller and built a rocket ship, which I f used to fly to the moon. And that's where I spent my summer vacation. And the, the, the teacher just gave it back and said, well, that was an interesting trip, wasn't it? Yeah. So. That's where it came from. Um, you know, I've always, I've always been, I guess the word for it would be quirky. I've always done the quirky thing. The, the other thing about my mother, um, very, very commonsensical woman. 
she told me, she said, you know, if you want to get out of this town and you don't want to wind up running your dad's pool hall, you know, the one thing you can do to make that happen is to read, mm. read. That's what's going to get you out of this little town and out of this little life. And so, I, I mean, I, I took, I took her at her word. I mean, what, what did I read? I read what kids read. I read comic books. Yeah. You know, I, I read all the comic books I could get my hands on. I, I, I would, I would go down to Andy Giles B street smoke shop, which, which was, you know, a smoke shop that sold magazines and comic books. And I would read all the comic books I could until Andy Giles kicked me out. And then I'd buy whatever I, I could afford allowance and, I'd read those and I'd trade them with other kids and, you know, read them all. And uh, the other thing that I read, um, which is what my dad, my dad was not a big reader, but he did read. And uh, what he read were what they called in the day, true crime magazines. And I don't think I don't think there's an equivalent today. I hope not, because true crime magazines, um, probably reality TV comes closest, but true crime magazines focused on true crimes. Yeah. So um, the, the writers would go to a crime scene and a photographer would meet them at the crime scene. The photographer would take pictures of the crime scene. And this was usually murder. Mm. I mean, this was horrible, bloody murders. He kept his hangings. I mean, all kinds of grisly crimes. If you saw a movie called Road to Perdition mm. with uh, Tom Hanks a couple of years ago, um, uh, Jude Law played a photographer who took those kinds of pictures. And that's what my dad read. Yeah. And they were all over the house. So that's what I read. Magazines that showed grisly photographs of actual proceedings. Uh, luckily, I graduated to a better quality of mystery fiction. I, you know, Dashiell Hammett and uh, Raymond Chandler, uh, Mickey Spillane. Um, but you know, again, uh, my mother never once told me don't don't read don't read those magazines. They'll rot your brain. You got to you got to read Shakespeare. She never said that. So. You know, when I became a writer, um, I, I had written three science fiction novels, and um, mm. I had a contract with Doubleday for four, four novels. Um, and anything I wanted to write, I could write. Uh, I, I impressed them with my first one. They gave me a contract for three more. Anything I wanted to write. So the first one was called Killer Bowl. Mm. Um, it was all about uh, football played. 50 years in the future as a blood sport where you played it with weapons. Uh, the second one was uh, called A Generation Removed about the problems of uh, growing old in a society that's geared toward youth. Uh, the third one was called The Resurrectionist about a guy who um, was involved in, in the matter transference industry where you, know, you just zipped around without, uh, without an airplane. Um, and, and I wanted to do something for the fourth one that w was totally unique that nobody had ever done before. Mm. I, wanted to, I wanted to really, you know, press the envelope and I wanted to incorporate the things that I love best, which were comic books, cartoons, uh, comic strips, and 
hard-boiled noir fiction. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I started looking around for a concept that would incorporate all of those. And uh, not easily done. I, I can tell you, not easily done. So I was watching Saturday morning cartoons one Saturday morning, um, purely for research, I told my wife, <laughs> purely for research. And uh, I was taken not with the uh, not with the cartoons themselves, which are pretty simplistic and not nearly as good as was I remembered from the you know forties and fifties. But I got I got taken with the commercials, yeah. which showed cartoon characters like Tony the Tiger and the Tricks Rabbit and Captain Crunch and Snap Crackle and Pop cartoon characters talking to real kids. Nobody seemed to think that was odd. Mm. And I said, you know what a great idea that would be for a book. What a premise. What if you had a world where cartoon characters were real? Mm. And so that was it. Uh, I wrote the book. Now, you remember, I had a contract yeah. to write anything. All right. So uh, it took me a year to write it. I sent it to Doubleday. And for the first time in my writing career, I mean, I'd written scores and scores of short stories, three novels, never had a reject. Doubleday rejected Roger Rabbit. Mm -hmm. It rejected Roger Rabbit. And so I called my editor and I said, Sharon, you know, why did you reject this? I said, well, I had to. And I said, it is the best thing I've ever written. I mean, it's, it's far better than anything else I've ever written. It's probably the best thing I'll ever write. She said, well, I agree. You know, it's funny. It, it's, it's witty. Uh, it's certainly unusual. It's a brand new premise, but that's the problem. She said, it was so unlike anything you've ever written, so unlike anything anybody's ever written, yeah. that I had to take it to the marketing department. She said, it was the marketing department that rejected it. So, ah, so I called the marketing department. I said, I said, Charlie, you know, why did you reject my book? And he wrote me, he called me back and he said, well, he said, I had to. He said, you know, we all liked it. We all thought it was really funny, really clever, but there's no category for it on the bookstore shelves. Yeah. It's not a regular novel. It's not a children's book. It's not really science fiction. It's not really a mystery. There's no category for it. So. You know, there's no place we can put it on the bookstore shelves. So I can't sell this book. I said, all right, what would you do if somebody gave you The Wizard of Oz, Alice in Wonderland, or Gulliver's Travels? What would you do with those? And he thought for a minute, he said, I couldn't sell those either. <laughs> so I, I called my agent and I said, Bill, you know, what am I going to do here? I said, if I, if I can't publish this. I don't want to be a writer anymore. Mm -hmm. This is what I want to write. So he said, Oh, don't worry about it. It's a wonderful book. We'll, we'll find it a home. So he started sending it to other publishers and sometimes to several editors at the same publisher. Uh, and along the way it was rejected yeah. 110 times, 110 different editors and publishers rejected who censored Roger Rabbit. And uh, so on the 111th submission, it crossed the desk of a woman named Rebecca Martin at St. Martin's Press. And um, 
she had just published a major bestseller for St. Martin's Press, major, huge. And so the president of the company told her, I'm going to give you a vanity project. You can publish any book you want, whatever you want to publish, you can publish it. And just at that moment, my book came across her desk. She read it. She loved it. So she took it to the president of the company and said, you told me I could publish anything. Here it is. Yeah. Who censored Roger Rabbit? This is what I want to post. So I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take it home. I'm going to read it overnight. I'll get back in the morning. So he got back to her in the morning, called her in the office, said, Rebecca, I told you you could publish anything you wanted, but you can't publish this because I can't sell it. <laughs> and Rebecca stepped up to the plate and said, you publish or I quit. Wow. So, so they published it. And yeah. Uh, they published it in very, very small quantities. I think 5,000 copies. Um, I, I, I was on the cover of the book uh, playing Eddie Valiant. And, you know, people ask me if I could live my life over again, would I do anything differently? That is a point which I would do something differently. Mm. If, I could, if I could get in a time machine and go back to 1981 when that book came out, I would buy all 5,000 copies because they cost two ninety nine, And today, if you look them up on eBay, they're somewhere just north of $400. Wow. So I would have bought them all. I would have put them in a garage somewhere and I would have sold them now. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of where the rabbit came from. Yeah, absolutely. And then how did it go on to become a film then? Because, you know, I would have thought that because there was such reluctance to release it as a book, that a film would have been even harder, right? Yeah, I, I, I did not think, I, in my wildest dreams, I never thought that any would make a movie of this book because I didn't think it was, it was filmable. Yeah. It, was, it was a book that I wrote to appeal to people's imaginations. And you had to kind of get invested in it and picture it in your mind when you read it. Yeah. Um, so the, I, I sold the book to uh, St. Martin's Press in 1980. It came out in 1981. Between 1980 and 1981, this phone call at home, right? And a guy on the other end of the line says, is this Gary K. Wolf? I said, yes, it is. He says, this is Roy Disney from the Disney company. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> Roy Disney is calling me at home on my home phone. <laughs> right. It's one of my friends having me off. Right? Yeah. And I said, yeah. And he said, no, no, no. It's really Roy Disney. And I'd like to know if you'd be interested in letting the Walt Disney company make a movie of your book. I said, yeah, right. Because the book hasn't even come out yet. How'd you get the book? <laughs> Turns out that somebody at St. Martin's, and I never found out who, hmm. and I, I really tried. I tried to find out who had done it because I wanted to kiss her or him full on the lips. Uh, but somebody sent a copy of the manuscript to the Disney company and said, hey, we're going to publish this book, and we think you'd be interested. And indeed, they were. They read the book and realized that this was exactly the kind of movie that they needed to make because at, at that time Disney uh, was they were certainly not the powerhouse they are today yeah. um, they they were a second-rate movie company they were making uh, movies like flubber 
um, uh, the black hole, um, the black cauldron, which disappeared down the black hole. <laughs> and um, they, they were making movies for the second half of double features and there were no more double features. So they had been offered uh, star Wars and they turned it down. <laughs> They'd been offered ET and they turned it down. Uh, so they, they needed something that would propel them back into the front ranks of movie making and movie studios. And they saw this as being that film, a live action animated movie. Well done. Uh, would do that for them, would, would bolster their reputation and put them back on top. Yeah. They, they had another reason too. They, they had a, I don't know if, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but um, when you walk down the street, you see a tremendous amount of t-shirts, hats, lunchboxes with Disney characters on them, yeah. right? <laughs> well, they make a tremendous amount of money selling products with their characters on them. Yeah. And their characters were starting to get a little stale. They needed some new ones. Uh, you know, they they couldn't fool around with Mickey Mouse anymore because he was kind of the corporate spokesmouse. Mm. Uh, they could still fool around with Donald, but, you know, nobody can understand what he said, so you <laughs> couldn't really have much fun with him. So they, they saw Rod Rabbit, Jessica, Baby Herman, uh, Benita Cab. They saw these as new characters that they could merchandise, put on lunchboxes and, and sweatshirts and, you know, have another revenue stream. So. Uh, I, of course, I was delighted. I, I, I said, of course, you know, of course you didn't turn this into a movie. Although I really did not think that Disney had the horsepower to do it. I, I didn't think, I didn't think it was a filmable book. I didn't see how you could take that book and put it on the screen yeah. and have it A, make sense and B, be any good. And you know, for the first five years that they worked on it, they kind of proved me right. They really, they didn't have the horsepower. Uh, and, and admittedly, a lot of it wasn't their fault. The technology wasn't there. The technology basically uh, caught up to the premise and then overtook it. And they had the technology in 85, but they didn't have it in 80, 81, 82, 83, 84. They just yeah. didn't have the technology. Um, so they tried, uh, they, they tried a couple of tests and they, they looked horrible. And finally they came to me and they said, look, you know, we're not having much luck with live action animation. Yeah. What would you think if we did this, um, with the cartoon characters wearing costumes the way they do in <laughs> Disneyland? <laughs> and, and I, I Oh my God, I'm going to wind up with, I'm going to wind up with the Disney stable of characters. I'm going to have Fred McMurray playing Eddie Valiant. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to have, I'm going to have Haley Mills playing Jessica, <laughs> Dean Jones as the rabbit and Kurt Russell as baby Herman. Mm. And I said, no, I said, don't you think that compromises the premise just a little bit? And they said, yeah, I, so they, they, they gave that up after a while, um, but they, they kept spinning their wheels and spinning their wheels. And I, it, it really did look to me like this would never happen after five years and nothing's going to happen. But then in 85, a couple of things did happen. Um, Roy Disney um, was, was forced out of the company. 
by Michael Eisner, who came in as, as CEO. And Michael Eisner brought with him a guy named Jeff Kassenberg, and they worked together in the 20th century. Um, uh, Jeff Kassenberg came in as the head of Disney Animation and Feature Films. And of course, when new management comes in, the movie studio, the thing they do is they throw out all the projects that uh, they've been working on because that's what got the former regime in trouble. So they threw out all the projects they've been working on, yeah. all except for this one. And this was the one project that they kept because it was the one project they knew they had to make if they wanted to become a relevant movie production, movie production house again. Yeah. So uh, they did, they did something that nobody at Disney had ever done before, not for Roger Rabbit or not for any movie. They brought in an outside producer. Wow. And that was a little known guy named Steven Spielberg. Who? Okay. Steven Spielberg, right? <laughs> never heard of him. <laughs> Probably never, never heard of him. <laughs> so uh, they brought Steve Spielberg in and, uh, that was 1985. And of course, to show you the difference that Steve Spielberg makes in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, when, in 1983, Roy Disney went to Warner Brothers and said, hey, we, uh, we're making a live action animated movie, cartoon characters living in a world with real people. And um, we would like to use Bugs Bunny in a cameo. He'll be on screen for 20 seconds. He'll say, hey, what's up, Doc? And he'll walk off. Oh, can we do that? Will you let us do that? And Warner Brothers looked at Roy Disney and said, get lost. Get lost. There's no way the Warner Brothers character is ever going to appear in a Walt Disney picture. It's not, never going to happen. Yeah. So five years later, Steve Spielberg goes in and makes the exact same request. You know, can we have Bugs Bunny? for a cameo. Warner Brothers said, of course, of course, take him, take him. <laughs> wow. uh, you know, what about Porky Pig? Take him to it. Wiley Coyote, the Roadrunner, Yosemite Sam, Tweety Bird, Sylvester, take them all, take them all. <laughs> so he got all the characters and um, <laughs> for, for a ridiculous licensing fee. I mean, it was, it was next to nothing. Uh, <laughs> only, the only requirement was Bugs Bunny had a contract. Oh, because Bugs Bunny is a superstar and Warner Brothers felt that Bugs Bunny was a co-equal superstar to Mickey Mouse. So the contract stated that Bugs Bunny had to be in every scene with Mickey Mouse. You could not have Mickey Mouse alone. Bugs had to be in the scene with him. And they had to have the exact same number of words of dialogue. So if you go home tonight and watch the movie on TV, you can you can tote it up and you will see that Bugs, Bugs and uh, Mickey are in the same scene. And if you want to tally their dialogue, they have the exact same number of words of dialogue. Wow. So, um, yeah. So um, Steve Spielberg brought in uh, a director named Bob Zemeckis. And Bob Zemeckis had been offered this directing job back in 1981 and it turned it down because he didn't think that Disney had the power to do the movie. Hmm. Um, so instead he went off and did some little known stuff like back to the future, <laughs> you know, Forrest Gump and a bunch of other movies. Nobody. Ever heard of. Um, 
So, so he came on and, uh, interesting for, uh, for my UK friends, mm-hmm. uh, we filmed a good portion of the movie in, uh, in Great Britain Ooh. at Elstree Studios. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, the reason that, that we did this was, uh, because Steve Spielberg likes the food in Britain, you know, go <laughs> figure. No, I mean, he does like the food in Britain, but that wasn't the only reason. Uh, no, uh, the, the, the movie was shot. The movie needed a, a, a three story soundstage. Ah. And Elstree Studios had one, but there were none in the United States. There are now, mm. but there weren't then. On the top floor of the soundstage uh, was the, uh, the actual set they would be filming. Like uh. the terminal bar was on the top floor. Yeah. On the second floor were the uh, puppeteers oh. who were moving the real objects that were in the scene that would later be covered up with animation and inserted like guns and, Uh. you know, stuff like that. Um, And they did that through holes in the floor. And then on the first floor was uh, a video bank of monitors. And Bob Zemeckis was actually down there with animators. (laughs) And they would look at the scene on a video monitor as it was being shot. And the animators would sketch in what, um, the uh, what the action looked like uh, so that Bob Zemeckis could see because at the time uh, he only he only saw half the movie he only saw the live action and he had to know what the other half was yeah. so you know the other uh, the other problem that we had was the casting and, you know the casting was very 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 critical yeah. um, the the person who played Eddie Valiant was the most important person because he was the one who would make the audience believe the cartoon characters were real by his interaction and his tone of voice and everything about him. And that was, that was critical. If the, if the audience didn't believe these cartoon characters were real, the whole failed. So they did auditions. Everybody wanted Harrison Ford. Um, uh, But when he found out it was going to take three years, he said, nah, I can't, I can't do that. So everybody wanted Paul Newman uh, but Paul Newman said, oh, I, you know, three years, I can't do that. So they kept auditioning major A-list actors and finally found the perfect Eddie Valiant. And that, of course, was Bill Murray. Hmm. Bill Murray was going to be Eddie Valiant, right? And, you know, not only Bill Murray not convince an audience that these cartoon characters were real, I'm not so sure he believed it either yeah. because he was constantly looking, looking at you're a cartoon rabbit. And so after a couple of weeks, they realized this wasn't going to work. So they paid him off a million dollars to buy out his contract. Yeah. He went off it. So they kept looking and um, finally they found the guy who was the perfect Eddie Valiant. And that of course was Eddie Murphy. All right. So Eddie Murphy is Eddie, is Eddie Valiant. And Eddie Murphy is now having the writers rewrite the script to make Eddie Valiant funnier than the tunes. Mm. And so the, this obviously isn't going to work either. So yeah. uh, Eddie Murphy gets paid off. He gets a million dollars to buy out his contract and a Ferrari. Ooh. All right. Wow. And a Ferrari. 
so you start to see you start to see how you make money in Hollywood. You know, you never work. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, meanwhile, over on the other side of Hollywood, Brian De Palma is making a movie called The Untouchables, mm. and Brian De Palma really wants Bobby De Niro to play Al Capone in this movie. Yeah, but Bobby De Niro is working on another movie. I can't. So, um, De Palma hires a, a British actor. And Bob Hoskins yeah. to play play uh, Al Capone. So after a couple of weeks of filming, Bobby De Niro calls De Palma and says, "Hey, I wrapped early. I come over and do your movie. I can be Al Capone." Yeah. And so now Bob Hoskins has got a million dollars and nothing to do, <laughs> right? So they buy him out of his contract. So he comes over and auditions. And I'll be honest with you, you know when when they told me that Bob Hoskins was going to come in and audition. I, I thought Bob Hoskins was a phenomenal actor. Mm. Uh, you know, the long good Friday, Mona Lisa. I've seen, I'd seen every movie he'd ever made the, the, the little, you know, kind of indie, indie feel uh, British movies. And I thought he was a phenomenal actor, but I said, you know, this Eddie Valiant is a prototypical LA private eye. Yeah. Bob Hoskins is he's British. And he's not just British, he's Cockney British. I mean, how's he going to pull this off? And Bob Hoskins came in and read for us. And when he read for us, he not only did it in a perfect American accent, not just an American accent. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
accent, but an L.A. private eye, hard-boiled American accent. But he was reading in a blank room, and he made you believe that rabbit was real. Mm. He made you believe it. Uh, uh, I, I have never, I have never seen an actor give a performance like Bob Hoskins gave in that movie. He was amazing. He was standing in an empty room in so many scenes with nothing, making it all up in his head. And he had you believing that it was all real. When you look at the movie and you see Bob Hoskins handcuffed to Roger Rabbit, if you look at that, those things. So Bob Hoskins is not only controlling his hand, by the motion of his hand, he's controlling what the rabbit's hand is doing. Oh, yeah. And he can't see the rabbit. The rabbit's, well, he, Bob Hoskins swore by the end of the movie he could see the rabbit. But uh, so he he was a phenomenal actor when when that gorilla threw him out of the Ink and Paint Club and he landed. Of course he was on a he was on a rope, but he landed hard and he broke three ribs. Wow. And yeah, everybody said, oh, you know, shooting schedule is going to change. We're going to have to, you know, wait until Hoskins ribs healed up. He was in the studio the next day, taped up, ready to go. Didn't miss a day. Wow. Uh, just a, a phenomenal trooper, phenomenal actor, and really made the movie succeed. Um, if I have one complaint about the movie, mm. and I this is really my only complaint about the movie, my only complaint about the movie is that Hoskins was such a phenomenal actor yeah. and made it look so easy that nobody in the industry really realized how hard it was and what a terrific job he was doing. And he didn't even get nominated for an Academy Award. Wow. And he should have won the Academy Award, yeah. hands down. So we had our we had our Eddie Valiant. Um, uh, we had to get the voice of Roger Rabbit, and we had to design what Roger Rabbit looked like. Yeah. Um, so um, as a lead animator, they, they looked at a number of guys. Everybody wanted Chuck Jones, which is Bugs Bunny. You know, most of the Warner Brothers characters um, it would have been phenomenal, but he was he was getting up in years. He was in his late sixties. And um, in one of the few times that I'd ever seen Hollywood people be humane, they chose, even though he wanted to do it, they decided they wouldn't hire him because they were afraid that the, the workload might kill him. <laughs> and usually in Hollywood, you know, <laughs> work at your desk until you drop dead and then we'll, you know, we'll bury you with your pencils. But uh, so then, uh, talked to Ralph Bakke, who had done the X-rated Fritz the Cat. And uh, I kind of wonder what Ralph Bakshi would have done with Jessica, but uh, uh, Stephen thought Ralph Bakshi was kind of a goon, and he was. Yeah. Uh, so they didn't get him. So they turned to a, actually a, a, a British expat. Uh, he, he was American, but he's lived his whole life in Britain, yeah. uh, named Richard Williams. Uh -huh. And uh, Richard Williams... Um, won an Academy Award for animating Pink Panther. Huh. Uh, so they hired Richard Williams. And as part of his deal, 
they, they set him up with an animation studio in London. Hmm. So a, a good deal of the animation on Roger Rabbit was done in London. And it, it, he, he hired uh, a lot of animators who were coming in from the Iron Curtain countries, hmm. which had just uh, divorced themselves from Russia. So a lot of these animators were heading west uh, to to do animation. They were phenomenal. And so you would go into the animation studio in London, and it was like a like a little United Nations. Uh, you know, if you wanted to talk to the guy from Latvia, you had to talk to the guy from Spain, who would talk to the guy from Greece, who would talk to the guy from, I don't know, somewhere else who would talk to the guy from Latvia. Then it would get all the way back around again. Wow. So um, we, uh, uh, I sat down with Dick Williams and together we designed what the characters looked like because I had actually, I had never, I hadn't visualized them. I had written, I written them. Yeah. I, I didn't have a vision of them in my head. So uh, Dick, Dick drew, drew Roger basically the way he looks, the way I described him in my book. Red overalls, polka dot bow tie. Uh, he thought that the orange top knot would be a nice, nice festive touch. Uh, yellow hands. He did, he did change it from uh, a brown rabbit in the book to a white rabbit because he thought that the uh, that a white rabbit would pop off the screen more yeah. that a brown rabbit would get lost in the background. So he made that change. And I, you know, I had no problem um, for Jessica. Uh, he based Jessica as I did on a character uh, drawn by an animator named Tex Avery back in the forties and fifties. Mm. And um, he appeared in a number of, number of cartoons, Swing Shift, Cinderella, uh, Red Hot Riding Hood, but her name was Red Hot Riding Hood. And if you look at those cartoons, which are available in um, uh, on YouTube, yeah. you will see that she has basically the same proportions as Jessica. She can be mother. She's got a, a more 40s hairdo, but she's got the wasp waist and uh, she wears the red dress and uh, in, a, in two cartoons, they use the same dance number. She does the same dance scene that Jessica does in the Ink and Paint Club. So there's, there's a definite family resemblance there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dick Williams wanted Jessica's body shape to be kind of disproportionate. Now, you know, there's no way that Jessica is a real woman. I mean, she's, yeah. she's obviously a cartoon character. Mm. And he, want, he did that intentionally so that... Uh, Nobody would accuse the animators of rotoscoping. And rotoscoping is a technique, perfectly acceptable animation technique, where you film a live actor or actress doing something, and then you trace over it and turn it into animation. Uh, right? Right. Been, been done for years. Uh, um, in Cinderella, the Cinderella's dance scene with the prince was all rotoscoped. That was a real couple dancing and they just drew over perfectly acceptable technique, mm. but he wanted people to know, actually he wanted other animators and other studios to know yeah. that Jessica was all animated. There was no way that you could rotoscope somebody with those proportions. Yeah. And oddly, Jessica 
was the most difficult character for the animators to animate mm. because they were used to animating ducks and geese and chickens and mice. Yeah. And here they're, they're being asked to animate not just a woman, but kind of the essence of woman, mm. you know, uh, uh, and they just couldn't get it right. So uh, Bob Zemeckis uh, went down to, I don't know which end of London, the East End, West End, South End, where the strip clubs are. Mm. And he hired a stripper. Uh, and he brought the stripper back to the studio and he filmed her doing Jessica's dance scene, wearing a red dress. So the animators could see what a real woman looked like doing that. And then so that they could see what was going on underneath the dress, he had her do it in brawn panties. And then he had her do it naked so that they could see the, the muscle movements. <laughs> and for weeks after that, you would go through the, animation department you would hear these guys saying geez you know i've been here so long i forgot what a woman looked like let's look at the jessica scene again <laughs> so uh, um they got uh, they found charlie fleischer he found charlie fleischer in a doing comedy in a comedy club and um we had heard that he was really funny and could do great voices uh so we went to see him perform and uh, the night we saw him he was doing a scene of Donald Duck having an orgasm. And it was, it was just, it was hilarious. So we brought him on as the voice of Roger Rabbit. And um, he worked with me and with Dick Williams. Dick Williams believed that every, um, every successful major cartoon star had some kind of a speech impediment. Uh, yeah. Porky Pig with his stutter and, um, Daffy Duck, uh, Donald Duck, they all had a speech impediment. So Charlie tried to f a number of things. And finally, it was Charlie who came up with the, the four-piece stutter on Please. And that was, that was all Charlie. Uh, so, you know, we had all the pieces in place. Um, we filmed it mostly at L Street Studios. Um, the, uh, it, there was an old... Uh, locomotive repair a repair facility a big warehouse and that was the acme uh, acme warehouse um and of course we filmed it in in winter and london in winter is definitely not la yeah. anytime there are no palm trees in london i can tell you that yeah. there are no palm trees so steve spielberg sent a plane to um algeria yeah. and brought back 24 palm trees <laughs> and set them around the outside of this train repair uh, repair facility. But of course it was winter and palm trees don't, don't do well in the winter. So every night uh, the, the craft people went out and they wrapped them in bubble wrap. Yeah. Every uh, 24 palm trees. So these palm trees wrapped in bubble wrap, right? And I was coming to the studio one morning and this, this elderly couple were walking by the studio and the guy looked up and he says, wow, he says, they're advertising condoms everywhere. <laughs> he saw the bubble wrap palm trees. Anyway, so, um, you know, everything went, everything went fine. Uh, it, it took from 1985 to 1988 to make the movie. And um, they premiered the movie in 1988 at uh, Radio City Music Hall in uh new york city mm -hmm. and um 
that was because I live in Boston and they didn't want to have to make me come out to LA for the movie premiere. So they did it in New York, yeah. which was closer. Um, so I, I am in the first balcony of the, um, uh, of the theater where all the VIPs were. Yeah. And on my left-hand side, I've got Kathleen Turner, who is like the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And she was the speaking voice of Jessica Rabbit. Right. And on my, on my right hand side, I've got Amy Irving, who was Steve Spielberg's wife at the time, mm -hmm. who was like the second most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. And she was the singing voice of Jessica Rabbit. And uh -huh. you know, why did Jessica have two voices? Yeah. When, when Kathleen was recording the voice, uh, she was pregnant. And when she tried to sing the song, she just she couldn't sing the song. Uh -huh. And whether she just can't sing, or whether she she didn't have the vocal control because of being pregnant, I don't know. But Amy Irving was in the studio at the time with Steve, and so Steve said, "Amy, hey, you know, you sang it gentle. Why don't you give it a whack?" <laughs> so um, Amy sang the song, and it was it was bang on. And Steve said, "All right, we'll use Amy's voice for the for the song, and and." Uh, Kathleen's voice or anything else. I didn't, you know, nobody's ever going to believe that Jessica has two voices. He said, ah, nobody will even notice. Nobody ever did. And uh, Kathleen did that role uncredited, like Ooh. James Earl Jones did for Darth Vader, because nobody at the time, I mean, she recorded the voices early before anything was done. Uh, and nobody knew whether this was going to be a major success or whether it was going to be another Howard the Duck. I mean, nobody knew if this was going to be a success or not. Yeah. And so if the movie was a flop, her name wouldn't be on the screen and she could just disavow it. If it was a big success, well, she'd say, oh, I did the voice. And like James Earl Jones, she you know, get a lot of credit. Yeah. Amy Irving took credit. And if you read the credits, um, it's Disney Irving singing voice of Jessica Rabbit. So, you know, I'm sitting here with these two beautiful women on either side of me. And I'm getting ready to watch my movie all the way through for the first time because they were still working on it yeah. up to like a week before. I'd never seen the whole movie all the way through. Uh, I had never seen my credit on screen. So I'm going to see my movie, my credit, <clears throat> and I've got these two gorgeous women sitting next to me. And, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I said, life doesn't get any better. Than this. And then by golly, life got better because <laughs> Kathleen leaned over and grabbed my leg and she whispered in my ear, she said, Gary, are you excited? And I said, Kathleen, you have no idea. So movie came out um, and you know, they really didn't know whether this was going to kids movie, an adult movie or when it turned out, it was, it was something for everyone. Plus mm -hmm. uh, the movie that year was the highest grossing movie of the year. Wow. Made $780 million. Uh, the, the next year, uh, I went to the Academy Awards where uh, I sat close enough to share to smell her perfume. And uh, the, the film won four Academy Awards. Wow. So critical and financial success. Um, Disney gave me a contract to write three more movies for them. Um, I wrote the sequel novel. And uh, while we got 110 rejects on the first novel for the sequel novel, we had 10 publishers bidding for the rights. Mm. 
all 10 of those publishers had rejected that first novel once. Three of them had rejected the first novel twice. And one of them had rejected the first novel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that first novel, which nobody, which nobody wanted to buy because they said they couldn't sell it because nobody would understand it. And there was no category for it. The novel is now in its 25th printing in paperback. Yeah. It's, wow. it's, it's sold over a million copies. So, um, you know, if I have a message for creative people, for young people, for filmmakers, for writers, it's, you know, believe in yourself and don't let anybody tell you that you can't do what you want to do. Because if you try hard enough, you can. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, were you surprised by the film's success because it's done so well? Oh, absolutely. Oh, oh, well, you know, I had seen it. I had seen it being put together. Yeah. And I thought, this is like the, this is the fun movie I've ever seen in my life. Um, but, you know, was, that, was, was it really the funniest movie I've ever seen in my life? Was it just because it was my movie? I don't know. But... Um, it seemed to me that it was pretty funny. And um, when, when I, the day after the premiere, um, I walked by the movie theater and uh, they, they, it was so popular that they had, that they had started a, they had a six o'clock in the morning showing. Yeah. And then they would show every, every three hours, six, nine, all through the day. And for every showing, there was a line around the block. Wow. Yeah, um, I, I I was gratified because people got it. I mean, people really they got it. They they got the humor. Uh, they got the subtle um, the the subtle undertone of uh, you know racism. Uh, the you know, tunes being a second class citizen in the human world. They got that. Yeah. Uh, they got it all. And over the years, Roger. Jessica, uh, especially especially Jessica, and especially Roger, have become iconic characters. Yeah. Uh, you know that movie is thirty three years old, and still people know who Roger Rabbit is, and people especially know who Jessica Rabbit is. I get on my Facebook page uh, every day. <laughs> I get uh, a picture from some young woman who is cosplaying Jessica, um, yeah. and. And when I went to China, I went to China a couple of years ago and lectured on animation. And uh, because they have a, a real burgeoning animation industry in China, they're very good. And so I, went, I lectured on animation at a number of universities. And every time I, I would talk about Jessica, people would, the, the, the people would laugh. And I said, well, why are they laughing when I talk about Jessica? Well, in Chinese, they refer to Jessica as big melons. So I, I, in China, I am known as the big melon man. All right. But um, I guess I was surprised and I'm gratified by it. And, you know, when I die, if they put on my tombstone, Gary K. Wolf, he created Toontown. I mean, that'll be enough. I'll be a happy guy. Yeah. And a lot of the time when authors' works are turned into films, you find that the author of aren't happy with the film and have like particularly Roald Dahl kind of disowned a lot of his films. But surprisingly you seem 
to be quite supportive of this film. Were you worried at any stage in its development about it becoming kind of Disneyfied or anything? Sure. Yeah, you always you always worry about that. Mm. Uh, and for the first five years, of course, I thought, boy, they're gonna they're gonna turn this they're gonna turn this into something that even my mother isn't gonna want to go see. Yeah. But after Steve Spielberg got involved, I never had a doubt. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that this was going to be an incredible, incredible movie. Um, and you're right. I, I have a lot of author friends. Uh, I have uh, I have had author friends whose books have been made into movies. Um, I had an author friend whose book was made into a movie. He had to buy a ticket to get into the premiere. What? Uh, he was not invited to the after party. Uh, I had an author um, who whose book was major, major bestseller, yeah. and it was turned into a movie. And um, whenever he wanted to come to the set, they made him pay his own way. What? Um, and, and you know that just never happened with me. I mm. they would they flew me to the set. I was able to spend as much time. Uh, on the set as I wanted. Uh, I'm a writer. I, I, you know, I'm not a filmmaker yeah. and I find movie making to be kind of boring, but um, they, they took great care of me because they, they believed in my vision. I mean, that's what they, that's what they were paying for. They had bought my vision of a cartoon universe where cartoon characters coexist with humans. When I, when I went to, to London, to, for the filming and they gave me a car and driver and I said, you know, what, what, what do you do? He said, well, I take you wherever you want to go. And I said, you mean, if I want to go for a pizza, you know, you will take me. I said, of course. I said, let's go to Harrods to the carriage entrance of Harrods. <laughs> and so he went to the carriage entrance of Harrods and I got out and uh, you know, one of my regrets was that, Nobody from back home could see me pulling up to the carriage entrance of a limousine and getting out. Yeah. So, you know, I, I I will never have a bad word to say about Disney. They uh, they treated me well. They produced a movie that uh, is classic. The uh, the movie the Smithsonian Institute here um, has a a roster of films that are like national treasures. Yeah. And uh, the year before last, I think it was uh, who framed Roger Rabbit was added to that list. So it is like a national treasure uh, at the Smithsonian Institute. And um, I'm a happy guy. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned briefly about writing sequels books. Are you still hopeful that there might perhaps be a sequel of the film? Yeah, stay tuned. Okay. <laughs> Stay tuned. Um, there's a single novel is uh, that I wrote right after the movie came out is Who Plugged Roger Rabbit. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote Who Whacked Roger Rabbit. And just this year during the pandemic, when I couldn't go out and couldn't do anything else, uh, I wrote a, a novel called Jessica Rabbit, but Serious Business. Um, and that is a Jessica Rabbit novel. It, talks about where Jessica uh, came from, how she turned, uh, how she changed from a simple shop girl into Jessica Rabbit, uh, how she met Roger, 
uh, how Toontown came to be. And uh, you know what I tell everybody is that in Hollywood, um, money talks. Yeah. And the rule of thumb is that um, if a, a sequel movie will make about three quarters of what the original movie made. That's the, kind of the rule of thumb. Mm. Well, at last accounting, Roger Rabbit has made well over a billion dollars. Yeah. Billion dollars. So three quarters of a billion dollars is a lot of money. Um, the, the problem is uh, more studio politics. Um, the champions of the movie were uh, 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 you know, the uh, president and, and uh, Jeff Kastenberg and uh, Eisner and Kastenberg. And when they left, the movie really didn't have any champion. When the Pixar people came in, the whole concept of the kinds of movies that they should be making changed. Yeah. Uh, the Pixar people want to do uh, CGI. They want to use their own characters. They're not really that interested in, in any of the classic characters. They even mm -hmm. care about Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, someday someone is going to take a long, hard look at this Roger Rabbit character, who is a billion dollar property for them. Um, and they're going to say, you make a movie, that's three quarters of a billion dollars in our pocket. Yeah. So I, I stay tuned. Mm. I, it's not over. It's not over yet. All right. Yeah, absolutely. And they don't seem to have done anything with Mickey Mouse recently either, which is weird because he's their mascot. Yeah. 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 And, and, and it's because the Pixar people are now in charge. And yeah. uh, for whatever reason, they want to use their own characters. Uh, they, they don't, they don't seem to have the, the, the feeling for the classic characters. Mm. You, they're, they're younger guys. You know, I'm, I'm an older guy. I remember Mickey Mouse. I remember the black and white Mickey Mouse cartoons. Oh, yeah. And and the, the, the current management over there doesn't remember that. They don't have that fondness for them. Mm. So, you know, it'll, it'll come around. Yeah. It always comes around. And you own a big collection of carousel horses as well, right? They do. They do. Uh, 52 of them. Wow. Um, yeah. The, uh, we, my wife and I wanted to get a gate for her father, who uh, used to, uh, as a, as a part-time job, used to run the carousel at Glenic Park in, in Maryland. Very beautiful machine mm. we decided we were going to give him a gag gift and we thought we'll get him a merry-go-round horse <laughs> figuring out it if he's worth much you'd want one and uh, we found a we found a a uh, a couple in berkeley california mm. who actually uh sold them restored them and sold them and of course it was way too expensive as a gag gift for for my father it's actually more than i want to spend for my father-in-law even for an odd gag gift but we fell in love with them and uh so we started collecting them uh the the, the one that i'm most happy with uh we found um a, a guy I called him. he was a fraternity brother of mine and he said, you know, he said, 
I've had one of these things for years. He said, I've had this thing for 30 years. And, uh, you know, I, I, I understand you collect them. You want to buy it. So he sent me a picture of it. And it you know, it was kind of white. It looked, it, it had bicycle reflectors for eyes instead of eyes. Um, it just looked kind of weird, but I didn't watch much before we bought it. And I had it sent to my restorers and they, they took a look at it. And I said, why is this such a weird looking horse? I said, well, it's because it's not a horse. It's a zebra. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, the park owners would paint the zebra stripes zebra. You know, maybe after five years, they'd paint them zebra. After 10 years, maybe they still paint them zebra. After that, park would probably failing, you know, white paint, turn it into horse. Yeah. And um, so we had it restored. And after we had restored it, uh, it turned out that it was made by a company called the Philadelphia Toboggan Company, mm. who started out making, obviously, toboggans. And then uh, figured, yeah, if you can make a toboggan, you can make a horse. And yeah. started making uh, carousels. And uh, they stopped making anything but horses in 1890. So this was pre-1890. Wow. And um, when I did some research on it, uh, I found out that this had come from a carousel that had operated in Aurora, Illinois, which was just outside Chicago, where my parents, my parents uh, lived. Mm. And I called my mom and I said, mom, I got, I got a, I got a animal from that Riverview park in, in Aurora. <laughs> and my mom said, you know, she's your father and I used to ride that carousel when we were courting. Before we were married, we would go down and ride that carousel. <clears throat> she said, my favorite animal was the zebra. She said, I'll never forget it. I rode the zebra. And I said, what did it look like? She said, well, it had monkeys on the back. <laughs> I looked on the back. There's two monkeys on the back. I had gotten the animal that was my mother's favorite animal on that merry-go-round when she was riding it in 1931. Wow. All right. Wow. And. Of that, from that carousel, that is the only animal that has ever turned up. <laughs> wow. So, carousel karma. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do you have any projects that you've been working on more recently? Oh, so many. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm working on, uh, uh, I'm working on a number of animated movies. Mm -hmm. I can't talk about them because... <laughs> Uh, I can't talk about it, yeah. but I'm working on a number of animated movies. Uh, I'm working on an adaptation of that first novel, Killer Bowl, uh, as an animated movie. Uh, I'm working on an animated version of Space Vulture, mm. which was uh, my last science fiction novel. Um, and uh, I'm working on a live action animated movie. That's based on my second novel, The Generation Removed. Um, so, yeah, I got a, got a lot of stuff going. Um, I, I'm also, since I finished the Jessica Rabbit novel, I've gone back to writing a, uh, another Eddie Valiant novel. Ooh. So I'm writing one with Eddie Valiant uh, set in Toontown. Yeah. Nice. Well, where are we able to keep up to date with you if we want to do that? Oh, you go to my website, www.garywolf.com, and you will you will find everything you ever wanted to know about the uh, Gary Wolf. And probably a lot, 
a lot more than you wanted to know and probably some things you don't want to know. Yeah. But it's www.garywolf.com. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show today. It's been very interesting to talk to you. Hey, thanks. It was my pleasure. And I want to give a shout out uh, to my goddaughter, if I could, yeah. uh, Isabel Masenka, who is uh, who is about to get her master's degree from Cambridge University over there. And she tells me that she's never coming back to the United States because she loves England so much. Wow. Okay. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Throbbing Pulse of Sound, the Toby Gribben Show.